welcome to another edition of the It's Always Friday the 13th podcast. Today we are taking a look at part two, one of my favorites, I would say. I'm John Evans and I am joined as always by my co-hosts Mike Kuchek and Vikram Wheat. Vic, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, guys. How are you? Very well. Michael, how are tricks? I am fantastic. I am uh, Skyping in from sunny Arizona. Always sunny in Arizona. It's like Philadelphia that way. (laughs) (laughs) So let's start off with, like, uh, looking back at, you know, your previous relationship with this film going into our podcast, like... Mike, let's start with you. Where did this rank for you historically? You know, are you particularly fond of Part Two? Absolutely, I, I, I would say that uh, Part Two is my favorite, uh, closely followed by Four and then Three. Um, but Two has always been the high point of this entire franchise for me personally. Uh, this is my favorite Friday the Thirteenth movie. So uh, going into this one. Uh, I did it with uh, joy in my heart. <laughs> awesome. And you, Vic? Um, I certainly, I enjoyed it uh, a lot. I mean, I have, I have some, some distinct memories of uh, uh, certainly the, the, the bag over the head um, and in particular of, of Jenny at the end, putting on mom's sweater. Like those are things that were really burned into my, into my memory from the, the first time I saw it. And I was probably, uh, far too young to see such <laughs> such a movie, <laughs> at least as people think this uh, these days. Um, and uh, it has I it, it, I'm not sure I'd have to think more about where it ranks in the uh, in the overall scheme of things. I do, uh, uh, Mike. I agree with your um, uh, your your joy in in part in part four. I think that's probably my favorite. Uh, but this is certainly up there. Uh, I mean, it's 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 very well done. It's very well directed. Um, and uh, uh, even watching it again through my through my grown up eyes, um, uh, I I jumped a few times in places that I I wasn't sure this movie would be able to to do. But it still does. It's very effective. Yeah, I mean, I don't really have a hierarchy. Um, I've always loved this one, though. Like, uh, it's definitely like a big part of what I think of when I think of Friday the Thirteenth. The scenes that you mentioned there, Vic, and the iconic imagery there. I would also add the guy in the wheelchair rattling down the stairs is definitely something that has always stuck with me. Um, oh yeah. These are also images that they repeat ad nauseum at the beginning of the <laughs> sequels, so that didn't hurt. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, it does get burned into your brain along the way. And I, that 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 the, the guy in the, that wheelchair thing is something I definitely want to touch on in the course of this conversation. Oh, we will. We definitely Fantastic. will. Fantastic. <laughs> yeah, and I also want to say that uh, again, like I was a teenager, I would say maybe even thirteen, fourteen, like just starting to watch films like this when I caught this one, and this one was one of the seminal, no pun intended, TNA flicks of my youth Mm -hmm. because i just remember so vividly just like really kind of innocent things now like she takes her shirt off and there are her boobs in her (laughs) bra oh my god (laughs) well let's be honest the first i believe the first girl who takes off her shirt is uh uh carrie who does not wear a bra through the entire movie i don't think um, oh, Terry. We'll have to talk about Terry uh, later yeah. on as well, because she, she is her own subject. But yeah, I mean, <laughs> I, I remember like certain 
little stretches of this film, you know, a few seconds here and there. Uh, let's just say that my videotape version of, of that footage started to get a little bit worn out from replaying over and over and over. In the pre-internet days, yeah. 13 year, uh, 12 and 13-year-old boys had to make do. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, uh, let's get into the film now in our recent watches. Uh, In my case, I watched it twice in the last two weeks. But uh, let's start with you, Mike. Like, in a general sense, having just seen it, what are your thoughts about this film from your 2015 perspective? I I will say that uh, two had, I I mean, it's kind of like, all of them. Uh, you know, I had mentioned in the first podcast, the first one, uh, I was had, had kind of nestled in my brain that was a little dull. Uh, it was a little slow. Uh, you know, I was going into that watch, you know, as homework, you know, and I found myself surprisingly entertained. Uh, with this one, too, it always been nestled in my head as my personal favorite. So I sat down uh, not having watched it in quite some time but with a lot of excitement. And I will have to tell you that I was even vastly more wildly entertained by this movie than (laughs) I had even when uh, I decided in my young mind that this was my favorite Friday the 13th movie. I mean, one of the things that that really struck me watching it, because again, you, you come to it with this fixed idea of what a Friday the 13th movie is, and you forget how long it took to establish what Jason was to, to become. Yes. Um, and uh, so I, one of the things that really surprised me watching it is how human Jason is. Um, like they, right. there are, you know, there's a scene when the, when the, the cop is, is chasing him into his, uh, his hideout mm-hmm. where he's running. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Like that, you know, I mean, you don't see Jason, you know, like that's sort of the, 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 the cliche, the mythology of it is, Jason just walks and somehow catches up to, to, you know, young girls who are sprinting. Um, and so it was interesting to see him, you know, just jog through the woods. It's kind of a lope. When you think of Friday the 13th movies as a franchise, there are certain tropes that are burned into the brain. It's the hockey mask. It's the giant lumbering guy. He's maybe a zombie, you know, la, la, la. And it actually took three movies, three or four movies to get there. Uh, you know, we're still in we're early enough in the franchise that he's got a bag over his head. It's more of a psychological thriller slash horror. Uh, you know, he's still young. He's still alive. He still runs around and gets into scuffles. You know what I mean? It, it's, it, it's a vastly different Friday the 13th movie than you would imagine a Friday the 13th movie being if you're unfamiliar with the franchise. Yes, so let's start there as as topics go. This version of Jason, this incarnation of the character, what makes him specific and unique to this film versus the other ones? I'll get us rolling and talk about like that scamper that he has with the pitchfork. <laughs> he's he's like a little devil, you know, in the way that he, he's he's visibly smaller uh in this film. In fact, you know the the guy that he's fighting, uh, Paul, I believe is the character's name. Yep, um, Paul. Yeah, is bigger than he is when they have that scuffle. So yeah. that is definitely something we never see again in any yeah. later film. 
And even though uh, Jason wins that fight, uh, Paul survives it. He shows up at the end. Yes. 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 (laughs) Yeah, this guy loses a fight to Jason Voorhees and, like, just picks himself up and comes back for more. You know, (laughs) when does that happen? Yeah, I I, I think uh, we we won't dig into the, the time anomalies yet but i I, we will get to that it's definitely a a, a sidebar of this but he's very distinctly younger um in fact like my read on him just watching his physicality and size was that he was 18 or 19 like like, i Mm -hmm. i thought that he was kind of like the you know evil version of a kid or a camp counselor if that makes sense um Uh, yeah and it's interesting to me that uh, there's a key scene in which our protagonist uh, all the the characters are gathered at that bar or a diner rather after they go to the bar and the protagonist sits there and she muses openly about who she thinks jason is i love that scene yeah and uh and i i have to admit that i laughed out loud when she uh uh, when she theorized that he was a frightened retard quote unquote (laughs) (laughs) i have to say mike Yeah, yes, yes. I mean, let's put aside the fact that, you know, she uses a term that is is now considered highly objectionable. Um, that has always been one of my favorite lines in the series. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, just think about it. I mean, he's like this frightened retard. <laughs> yeah, she's throwing out these various, like, scenarios of what he is, and that's just one of them. She just like, says, you know, a frightened retard? Yeah, yeah, it's like, but I, I, I mean, that's, I, and there's no way that she can accurately come to that. I mean, those basically the screenwriter is just telling yes. uh, the audience, you know, who Jason is and what's going on via her mouth. Well, but, she pretty much figures it out in that scene. I mean, she yeah. gets about 50% of what she's going to need to know later. Yeah, well, I, I mean, she's basically just using armchair psychology to pluck it out of the air. Uh, but, yeah, you know, I, I mean, at the end of the day, she's absolutely correct. And so it's just like, he is a mentally challenged young man with uh, a skewed sense of reality running around the woods. And, I also uh, had yeah. the sense that he was a teenager. I mean, I would yeah. give the film and its chronology enough. I don't know if this is credit or what, but like he could be a really big 13 or 14, you know, like there he's a freak, you know, like yes. th- there's some possibility of that. I, I mean, just given the fact that the character ends up being like seven feet tall. Yeah. And- and I mean, that makes sense. You know, he's a mongoloid. Well, the, so I, because again, I found myself doing the same kind of chronological math and, and thinking about what we, what we talked about uh, uh, last time, that, the, that he was clearly, you know, still a 12-year-old boy when he grabs Alice and pulls her out of the boat at the end of the first one. Um, uh, so if the idea is that on this kind of crazy Friday the 13th with the storms and this, you know, these sort of supernatural portents that he is resurrected by the death of his mother. So he would be 12 when that happened. This is five years after that, uh, that he has, that he has presumably been living in the woods and, and now being, having been brought back to life continues to grow, puts him at about 17, 17, 18, which is exactly what, uh, what, what we said. Or you could um, say, you know, he was six or eight, and now he's twelve or thirteen. But whatever, like it, it works if you think of it from that perspective. Yeah, like, yeah. There's, yeah. yeah. There's a version of this in which he's not a zombie, but he's still supernatural in that he wakes mm-hmm. up on the shore, you know, I, and his last memory is drowning in Crystal Lake, and then he wakes up 
on the shore of Crystal Lake, shivering, young. You know, he's a child. He looks for his mother, finds her decapitated. You know, I mean, with no idea that his soul was on the other side for a period of time. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I think of it the same way. I mean, when I was jotting down my notes this time, I was thinking that this is like his second lease on life. You know, it's whatever yeah. happened that night, it restarted his life. So he's reborn. Now he's a living being again. He's going to age. He's going to, you know, go through the normal life processes at this point <laughs> until he's killed again. Yeah. And then he gets resurrected again. And then he's a zombie. <laughs> but, you know, I, I, I think it, it, it's this. And if we're going to circle the supernatural idea of this franchise, it's the idea that uh, legends, evil acts, uh, you know, have their own power that resonate with the universe. Yeah. And somehow her killings acted as some kind of a, you know, price being paid or, you know, the 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 amount of energy being earned or or stored in in that killing spree was enough to you know fuel this resurrection uh that occurs she buys him his evil life essentially that's one way to look at it it's also interesting someone somewhere in the film uh we get a line along the lines of he had no concept of what death was because he's you know developmentally disabled until he witnesses his mother being decapitated and that right. is his introduction to the concept of death that's right and she, yeah she actually points out that she raises the idea that he is already alive and crouched in the woods and watching his mom run around and murder people yeah i mean whether you want to look mm-hmm. at it that way that like he dragged himself out of the lake when it when it happened you know and he's been living out there by himself because kind of like my cat he, the cat would love to have been here with me while he was gone for three weeks but he wasn't smart enough to find his way back here so he was just surviving i'm looking for him the way pamela would be looking for jason but their paths never crossed you know so there's that possibility except for this this is why that's impossible the chronology just does not work 1957 is when he drowns he would be 28 years old thereabouts in this film if if he had just been alive since he went into the drink in 1957 yeah it's impossible yeah john we we are left with exactly two choices as as fans of this franchise and choice one is to uh, go, well, it's just shitty screenwriting and they just don't care. Where choice right. B is to uh, lay to these choices with a potentially supernatural angle. And I will go with choice B. <laughs> <laughs> the years don't match well, up because he was a, a ghost for a while. And that's yeah. why. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, and I, But I think, again, as we've discussed, I, mean, I think the movie supports that reading of it. Um, in, in, in remarkably subtle uh, uh, and interesting ways. Um, and again, if you, if you do look at it that way with that notion that he's reborn when his, when his mother dies, even if he didn't see her decapitated, which I think is the way, the way Jenny sort of spins it in the bar, um, again, he woke up on the shore next to his decapitated mother. That's still an introduction to, to death uh, for him. Um, and it's just the whole thing is interesting to me too because again we we think of Jason as this kind of lumbering behemoth death machine 
Um, and it's interesting, even, even if it's, you know, uh, as, as Mike put it, the, uh, uh, armchair psychology, Jason has psychology in this, you know what I mean? Like they spend some time exploring, uh, who he is, why he, why he is behaving in the way that he behaves. Um, one of the things actually that I found interesting to that end is that he does have the bag on his head, um, mm-hmm. when presumably he's been alone. You know what I mean? Like, like, I wonder what motivated him to cover up his, uh, his, his face. Well, I mean, he's got that cabin and he's got like a, a toilet in there and he's got canned goods and, and he wears shoes and like, I, I, yeah, I think that this I is, want to touch on. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> actually, I, I also, I actually laughed at the, at the toilet. When the, yeah, when the cop finds the toilet, I thought, you know, because like I said, it's it's part of that humanizing of him that didn't that didn't fit with the picture I have of him in my head. It's like Jason takes it. The shit, really? Right. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, well, when is, he is gets a shot in the balls, there? he reacts. You know, like mm-hmm. oh yeah. Well, I, I, I mm-hmm. this is this is a Jason that's still way closer to Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Hills have eyes. He's mm-hmm. a weirdo in the woods who likes to kill people. You know, yeah. but, uh, you know, Vic, you touch on something that, that I also find very interesting about these first two movies is uh, there's a, a, a lot of effort is given to root the villains in psychology. I, I, I think that, um, as mentioned in the last one, I, I, I think that one key influence is Psycho. Uh, yeah. I think that the, the filmmakers are actively trying to lay a psychological bed. And to the extent that I mean, in the first movie... Uh, Pamela breaks down psychologically and that's how we discover our villain. And in this movie, Jason is bested because our protagonist uh, plucks at his psychological strengths. You know, we're mm-hmm. not, we're not looking at a zombie rotely going around stabbing naked teenagers. But there is well, a somewhat the- mythical or ritual quality to what he's arranged there. He has candles burning all of the time because oh, you yeah. can see the light on the cop's face even during the day of the candlelight, even though we don't see Pamela's head in that shot. Right. So he has this altar set up for her, and he's laid the sacrifices around her altar. He's clearly trying to resurrect her the same way that he was resurrected. Yeah, you know, John, I, I, I think uh, what you said just a couple of minutes ago, uh, you know, the idea that Pamela's uh, murders, you know, on, on, you know, perhaps not consciously to bring her son back. Uh, she's revenging her son. But, uh, you know, there is a certain ancient magic and blood sacrifice, you yes, know. Yes. Well, it's like something was listening to her plea. And she provided sufficient sacrifices onto its bloody altar you know yeah. for it to act <laughs> yeah yeah i mean is crystal lake a bad place or was crystal lake made into a bad place because of the sins of the people who uh hung out around it uh, we don't know it's funny because when you mentioned psycho i mean that is a you're right that is a powerful influence because the the mother-son relationship is the the pall that's hanging over this yeah um, i mean you wonder you wonder what kind of mother was pamela to jason when he was alive like right. was she just a, a nice, normal, loving mom, and uh, you know, broke psychologically when he died, or was she? I mean, you know, was she a little crazy already? Like, you know, did did uh, um, was some of this this murderousness or some of the the, the sort of psychological damage that would lead someone to 
be a murderer was some of that imparted on him before he even drowned. Yeah, well, we talked I, about this know. a little bit last week, and I even started to think, like, we know there's no Mr. Voorhees in the right. picture. Um, and yeah. she does seem like she could be, like, a, have a screw loose. And for one thing, we know that she was a very, he was a very difficult boy to have as your son because, you know, he's got the mental problems. Obviously, we know he was hideous to the eye. Like, there was no question about him being, like, a cute Down syndrome kid. You know what I mean? Like, he was awful looking even as a little boy Mm -hmm. and how tragic that is for everyone involved um how much more difficult that makes it for her and for him i was thinking like this is messed up and probably impossible but when you look at his face he almost looks like half of his face is normal and half is all messed up it's almost like he was half aborted or something and somehow he survived anyway Mm -hmm. and so he's he's fucked up like this because she tried to abort this unwanted child as an unwed mother. And so Mm -hmm. she's been dealing with the quadruple guilt of all of that. Either that or I, and if we're going to take a supernatural idea all the way down the road, it's the idea that his, uh, his father was evil. She was good, but infected with that evil via having Jason, you know what I mean? He's, he's, he's Rosemary's baby. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. 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 But yeah, I mean, it's all it's it's all interesting. I think all those ideas are in play. Again, extrapolating from the the things that are in the movie, I don't think the, the movie doesn't answer uh, a lot of these questions, but it certainly raises them. I think if you if you again if you spend twenty minutes talking about it the way we have, um, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> There's another side of Jason that I want to get into, which is kind of how he functions as a killer, how tough he is, you know, that type of thing. Really geeky stuff, but I think it's kind of fun and interesting. So, for instance, I want to posit that in this one, his in, – in, Mike will appreciate this – D&D terms, his hit points and constitution are not nearly as high as they will become. He's level one Jason in this yeah. movie. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. And you see that in situations like, which now it, to me is comical. He is on a chair with a pitchfork. She knocks him off the chair. He falls to the floor, the chair breaks or whatever. He hits the mm-hmm. floor. She swings a chainsaw, kind of gets him in the arm. Then she breaks a chair over his back and he's knocked out. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That has to be his, his biggest <laughs> defeat in all of the series. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, 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 if, if two and three do anything to firmly plug into the horror movie trope of protagonists not doing intelligent things, it's the frequency with which the killer is just kind of uh, knocked out or incapacitated and not done in at all. You know, what I mean, like mm-hmm. I, you know, the first movie, I, I think Pamela gets like knocked down like three, three or four times. times. The way that Jason kills in this film, he's much more matter of fact. Like, it's funny, by, you know, part six or something, he has to have this giant Bushmaster chainsaw thing, you know, this bandsaw in his hands. And the kills become extremely creative. And that's obviously for, you know, filmmaker reasons as much as the character, but, or more. Um, 
But in this film, he's so matter of fact, like he just cuts throats the way mom did. You know, he he's very much just get the job done. He he just stabs a girl with a knife. Um, the one exception yeah. is the spectacular kill is when the lovers are on the bed and he impales both of them with a spear, more or less, you know, pinning them to the floor and yeah. kind of one upping Pamela killing uh, Kevin Bacon in the first yeah. movie. Yes, uh, I, I, given that, I, even uh, he, he would have that much more upper body strength to accomplish that. Yeah, I, yeah. I, uh, uh, Vic, uh, just to circle back around uh, to the bag on his head, um, I think that he wears it in response to the teasing that he suffered when he was a kid. Like, oh. Jason <laughs> knows that he's an ugly boy. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, and that's an only mommy. He literally literally has a face that only a mother could love. <laughs> right. And so, and so he wears this bag on his side. I mean, even though he's a, he's a weirdo living out in the woods, there's a certain, like, I don't want anybody to see my face. Although I am yeah. deeply, I'm deeply amused by the fact that Jason has thought only to cut out one hole for his eyes. Yeah. Um, well, no, again, I, I mean, I, I, uh, I absolutely agree with that. Um, but I, again, I just think it's, it's, it's an interesting layer to Jason's psychology that, uh, again, as this reanimated uh, uh, killing machine, he still thinks, you know, I don't want, uh, you know, <laughs> he's still sort of vain enough that he wants to cover up his face. Well, he so doesn't want to get... tease him. He, he does, <laughs> yeah, he, he doesn't want the, the kids to tease him. And, uh, and, they're, they're, yeah. and, and that actually points to the fact that he is, you know, a scared little boy in some ways. Yeah, you know? so no, it's I like, know. I, I, you know, instead of Pamela getting revenge against the teenagers who let her son die, he's now getting revenge. I mean, he's the ultimate nerd rage. You know, yeah. they they teased yeah. him when he was a kid. Now he's going to chop them up. Fuck you. So the well, bit with the dog. <laughs> oh, like, the dog. Okay, we we have the remains, and this is much more graphic than anything you, you see with dead animals uh, these days. I think. You see this really horribly mangled dog in the woods, but there's no blue ribbon on the dog, right? So we're meant to think that he's killed Muffin, (laughs) who's Terry's dog. But then Muffin shows up at the end, and we'll get to that later. But I thought it was interesting that Jason would kill the dog. And we can assume... Obviously, some dog lost its life, and maybe we can assume that Jason did it. I found that sort of psychologically telling that he would massacre this sweet little dog. Right, yeah. That, that, he's not just sitting around going, oh, these teenagers, but dogs are nice to me. You know, it's like, yeah, yeah. I mean, he's just a psycho in the woods. And if yeah, you like nobody is safe. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, yeah, there's no innocence. I, actually, I found that to be almost too much of a direct nod to Halloween. Like that was my first thought was, oh, uh, there's the there's the scene in Halloween when when uh, Loomis and the and the sheriff find the dog, the mangled dog that that uh, um, uh, Michael Myers has been has been eating, you know. But mm. they don't show it, and it was almost like we're going to do the same thing. But because it's Friday the 13th, we're going to show you the mangled dog. John, you had mentioned that, uh, you know, the screenwriter's instructions were to basically rip off Halloween. But uh, I think this franchise effectively signals that it's not intending to be Halloween due to the fact that we murder Laurie Strode. Or this this franchise's version of Laurie Strode in mm-hmm. the opening sequence. Yeah, I mean, yes. it's it's yeah, we we kill Jamie Lee Curtis at the top 
of part two. There's no re- Ellen Ripley in this series. Everyone's going to die all the time. <laughs> I'm really glad you brought yeah. that up, Mike, because I kind of want to start at the beginning now and, you know, just see as we go through more or less the chronology of the narrative, what comes to mind, and what we want to talk about. So in the open of this film, yeah, we are back with Alice and yeah, Delorie Strode, as you very, you know, you very correctly point out. We get this dreamy musical cue. She's having a nightmare again, which was a big thing in the first movie. All the talk about the rain of blood dream. She's Alice herself is woken up from a nightmare in the first film. So she's having this nightmare. And that's how we, in this movie, contextualize the uh, highlight package from the first film. Yeah. Uh, They drop the pretense in subsequent films, but at least in this one, it's like, this is what she's dreaming about. And then we get the, you know, key moments from the first film. And I like that they want to thrust those ideas into the foreground right from the start of this movie so that it informs our experience of the second one. They're trying to maintain the thread of continuity from film to film. Yeah, this is back when uh, feature film sequels would have a, you know, last time on. You know, a sequence yeah. at the top of it. If you remember the Rocky movies, you used to do that too. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's right. Yeah, but I mean, it is kind of like a telenovela or a soap opera or some kind of TV thing. You know, it's like one long story and they really want to, you know, continue the mythology that they established very directly. Unlike a lot of sequels, which is kind of like the first one kind of happened but you know right. we might be fudging a lot from it or we're it's a fresh start uh this this really is a continuation of of the last one and uh so it's a couple of months after the events of the first film i like that she has this weird art in the apartment like oh, yeah and it's like a psychological window into how she views herself. Like it's clearly herself. And mm-hmm. it's this sort of like damaged warrior is kind of how she thinks of herself. Yeah. Gentlemen, I really want to discuss this opening sequence because uh, I, I had not watched this movie in, I want to say about 10 years. And within five minutes, I was wildly entertained by, by, and, and this, this opening sequence is interesting and goofy on some levels than the rest of the film. Um, there are three things that I noticed. Uh, a, our protagonist uh, disrobes, but off screen. Uh, yes. it, it, it's interesting that the camera goes completely out of its way to uh, not show our the protagonist of, of our last slasher flick taking off her clothes and putting on a new outfit. Uh, right. the, the second thing is uh, when she notices the open window and we get an extremely literal cat jump where it's super clearly obvious that there is a grip off screen of yes. an off frame throwing a cat. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me stop you there because, like, yeah. there's a couple things within. I don't want to get to the end of the sequence yet. Um, yeah. I, I I write on IMDb that, that, that uh, someone did throw the cat. I mean, it, it, it's obvious, but, yeah, they've, they've come clean to that. She's in the shower, and then back to Psycho and those kind of references. Like, we get the shower curtain yanked, but it's her yanking mm-hmm. it, and she's giving the camera this sort of, like, blank but vaguely confrontational look. Like, you know, 
Why are you watching me? What do you think you're going to see, you freaking voyeurs? You know, it was a weird, it played, there's so many interesting little choices and nuances in this film. Like, I really like the filmmaking of this film. Oh, so do I. And let's definitely get into that as we go forward. Yeah. Yes. yeah. Uh, sure. I, I will say that, um, I mean, uh, John, do you, do you have anything else? Because I actually want to bounce all the way to the end of the sequence. Yeah, the only thing I want to say about the the cat is that she gets this big beat of relief, which is something that I mentioned in the first movie as being her her calling card. And in this one, it's clearly her doom, you know, that the fact that Mm -hmm. she associates her real dread, which is, you know, spidey sense that could save Mm -hmm. her. She attributes it to the cat or however she just doesn't want to deal with it. And so she relaxes and then she's fucked. Whereas she had the ice pick. She's ready to go. You know, she's in, she thinks of herself as this cool heroine. She's not shivering. She's not panicked. Like mm-hmm. she had a chance to survive this, but she kind of blows it. Well, she, I mean, lowers, she lowers her yeah, guard. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, she lowers her guard because I mean, she very you know, logically thinks I am only freaking out because I have been through a harrowing experience and this is the psychological residue thereof. You know, yeah, but she picks up the ice pick. Like there's a little bit, and she got that call, which is also funny. Does Jason call her? Is that a, is that an accident? But like, she gets a, she gets a a, a stalker call. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. Uh, I I think that is probably the one and only, Time that uh, Jason uses the telephone in this franchise. Yeah. Well, uh, before we get to the very end of it, how do you think he found her? I mean, it's kind of a big deal that he's out in the woods. She's clearly in a, a different place. She's in a, at least a small city, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and, and he finds her. Yeah. I mean, I, again, I, I, I think this is a situation in which we have two choices. We can either go to uh, shitty screenwriting in which we're just getting beats that are unsold. Or else we can go. Well, there's a supernatural version, a reason for this. Yeah. That 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 he is just a, a on you know she is just on Jason's radar and he is drawn in in you know he's gonna get her no matter what. Well, it's like the cat finding its way home in reverse. It's like you know he has this just sense of who's wronged him and he's drawn right. to her you know like a magnet potentially. Yep. Well, and it's interesting, too, because I, I know we talked about this when, when discussing the, the, the first film, that part of what makes Friday the 13th unique is this Camp Crystal Lake setting um, that is that is very isolated and out in the middle of nowhere. And this is the kind of the, the certainly the only time um, uh, for, the, certainly for the first few films that you get Jason venturing into the suburban world. Um, yeah. And it does, and that's part of the reason that it's that it's such an effective sequence. And it really is. I mean, it's a it's a terrifying opening. It's much much better than the than the, the the POV opening we get at the beginning of the first film, I think. Oh yeah. Um, but part of the reason it's so effective is look, like just because you're not out in the middle of the woods doesn't mean Jason can't get you. Yes. It doesn't mean that you're safe. Yeah, I mean, we're really spending a lot of time on this, but I think it is one of the best scenes in the entire movie in a fantastic. Yeah place to focus on uh at length so okay mike take it away i want to point out the idea that uh you know again supernaturally speaking that there's a curse you know i and once you you know kind of like the ring or the grudge once you get you know you know exposed to the plutonium of this evil you know it, it'll, it'll track you down eventually there there's i mean, mm-hmm. you can get on an airplane you can go to china and jason will show up eventually um but i will say that yeah. 
uh, at the end of the sequence, our heroine puts on a, uh, a kettle of tea, which uh, starts a scream. And, uh, uh, you know, screaming kettle of tea is, to my mind, kind of uh, filmic 101. You know, it's, it's kind of an obvious, you know, early Hitchcockian choice to make. I mean, it's effective, but it's still like, okay, you know, I, we're, we're reaching for the lower shelves. You know what I mean? But what makes that pot of tea so amazing is the fact that after Jason rams an ice pick into this chick's head, he then thoughtfully reaches over and takes the tea off the stove and shuts off the flame. It's like never in the entire franchise okay. is Jason so, so polite and thoughtful. It's like, he well, doesn't got- shut off the burner. He doesn't well, shut he off doesn't? the burner. Oh, okay. No. No, he's yeah, but he does he does take it off. But I, I kind of understand why he does it because it's loud. Like, and he just picks it up and like kind of slams it down. It, 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 it. To me, it is somewhat ludicrous, but not as ludicrous as putting his mother's head in the fridge. Right. What is well, that? Yeah, I, I know. Well, like he, 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 he had a really specific intention for how this was going to play out. But like he's, he's walking around with this severed woman's head, which the kids skipping in the puddles does not notice at all. Well, like J- Jason brings his woodland stealth abilities to the city because we yes. open with the kids skipping around in the puddles and his mom calls to him and he doesn't notice this, this weirdo with a bag over his head carrying a rotted head under his head. <laughs> well, there's a, listen, there's a, lot, there's a lot of that in the film where you see people looking that like, if there really was a guy with a, you know, a bright white sack over his head, like there's people looking at the camera and you're kind of going, you believe you really can't see anybody there. Um, (laughs) But um, no, that is, I mean, that, that, that really is sort of, uh, sort of interesting. Yeah. The, you know, our smash cut to Friday the 13th. Part two is is Jason taking, (laughs) but it's Jason taking a tea kettle off (laughs) off of the stove. I I had exactly the same reaction, Mike. I really did. I got it. Again, I I had not watched this. I I, a I had you know always thought well two is probably my favorite. B I hadn't watched in ten years, and C when I sat down to watch this again, I was blown away by how thoroughly I was enjoying every second of what I was watching. And when it goes Friday Thirteenth. Whoosh, ba-boom! I'm just like, oh my god, dude, this movie's a nuclear bomb. Well, this is the true template for the future films. I mean, there's things that I really liked about the first movie, but overall, the second one is shot better, written better, edited better, or debatably well, I, better acted. I did want to discuss because one of the, I mean, I when when this came up, and I'm sure it was one of the things that I that I knew somewhere in my head. But I saw directed by Steve Miner, and I was like, oh, right, the guy who did Lake Placid and Halloween H2O. And then I, I jumped on IMDb and discovered, I don't know if you guys have looked at this, the strangest list of directing credits I have ever seen. So listen, so he does Friday the 13th, part two and part three. He does a, a lot of TV throughout his career. But his other feature film credits, I, I think his next credit, feature credit, well, he did Warlock after part three. Then he did Forever Young with Mel Gibson and uh, Jamie Lee Curtis. Whoa. He did Wild Hearts Can't Be Broken with the young Gabrielle Anwar. <laughs> um, uh, Big Bully with uh, uh, Tom Arnold and uh, Rick Moranis, which yes. actually turned surprisingly dark in the third act, if I remember correctly. 
um, and which suddenly makes more sense to me as I'm looking at it. And then he goes, you know, and then and then he sort of goes back to horror and does H2O and then does uh, 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 Lake Placid, I think, off of the success of that. But right now, the guy's directing for ABC Family. Right. He's yeah. doing. He's done 17 episodes of Switched at Birth. It's the. It's. I mean, he. It's almost like he's somebody who clearly wants to be making family dramas, um, but has to keep coming back to horror to pay the bills. Um, and he's also just very good at it. Yeah. The, um, the, the only. Uh, the, the only. You know, close comparable would be Stuart Gordon doing uh, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or, or no, no, that's not true. Uh, uh, Bob Clark, who traditional uh, mm-hmm. played Dead Things, Death Dream, and then you know this guy goes on to do uh, Christmas Story. So well, not yeah. only that, he did yeah. uh, Black Christmas. Yeah, so. exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, Which is truly <laughs> the antecedent to even Halloween. Yeah, but I, let's I, talk about the protagonist. I mean, that's always something that we should be focusing on. Like, how do we handle the main? girl almost always unless it's tommy jarvis in one of these films and i think this one is one of my favorites oh Uh, absolutely i agree i really this character is kind of hard to get a handle on like she she's not one thing like she has a lot of nuances and and different somewhat contradictory characteristics she's not a type like i found her like more like a real person than i expected she stands out more than Alice did. I mean, I remember we, yeah. we we talked about how it takes a little while to figure out who the protagonist of the you know who our, our main girl is going to be in the first film. In this one, like the second she rolls up in that you know stuttering jalopy, yes, um, and everybody you know everybody turns and looks, and it's like oh well here she comes. She has something about her face and her you know she's very pretty, but she's very distinct. Well, she gets the um, hero intro. I mean, she gets the more traditional, okay, here is the protagonist. You know, they yeah. build her up right from the start. But I feel like she merits that. I appreciated they set up that the car is unreliable for the scene an yes. hour later when she gets in the car and tries to leave and it won't start. Um, I respect I that they motivated the- that and tried to explain that and set it up so that it wouldn't be too ridiculous when the car doesn't yeah. start. Yeah, that's what I mean. That's the, those are the, the the little touches that uh, that I think set the film apart. Yeah, and not only that, I mean, like the the dialogue. You can say that some of it is a little corny, but there there's a energy to the wit and the repartee in this film that I think is at a higher level than there is in a lot of them. And there's like multiple dimensions to it. When when he is fixing the car and they're talking about the child psychology and everything. So mm-hmm. that's tying into what she's going to do with Jason. It ties into their relationship. And it's also part of how we're establishing the unreliability of the car and that yeah. he's mm-hmm. not a great mechanic. So look at yeah. all of yeah. the things that that scene is doing very naturally. Yeah, I, I, I think uh, the thing that I like uh, about that scene is, uh, yeah, and again, there's a trope in horror that uh, cars magically don't want to start. You know, yeah. as soon as someone is trying to escape from a killer, and uh, this well, the is first one, one that, had that. Yeah, yeah, this is one of the few examples in which that beat is actually sold. I was also delighted that she had the keys. That's another one that uh, that drives me crazy. <laughs> <laughs> well, she's smarter than the average bear, and they yeah. almost use that exact 
uh analogy because there's all these weird bear references here but (laughs) (laughs) i didn't get that but (laughs) but beat after beat is establishing that she's a good chess player you know that she understands psychology Mm -hmm. that you know she's very curious that she's a grad student you know she's a student of human nature uh like there's just a lot to like about her as a heroine yes Mm -hmm. Oh, but there's she has this earthy sense of humor, like the mm-hmm. joke that she tells when they're down by the water. Um, you know, it's all very childish, these jokes, but she tells like the frog in the blender joke. And she has this yeah. mischievous quality that's very charming. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I, I'm kind of keying off that. I, you know, part of the discussion that we had about the first movie is, I mean, again, you know, kind of the, the stereotype of these films is that the female characters are just these these dumb blonde girls who uh, run around with their tops off and they get their heads cut off with machetes and da 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 da. But when you actually watch the movies, they're way more interesting characters than I, I think you know society gives them credit for. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, but it's not like she's this robotic badass. Like she has this moment of tremendous vulnerability late in the film where she's hiding under the bed. And he's skulking around the room and a rat comes by her face and she pees her pants. <laughs> and, and, and he in fact discovers her due because to the presence of, that. of urine. Yeah. 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 And, and then he's cagey and kind of jumps up on that chair so that she'll think he's gone, but he's actually poised to, to attack her. Yeah. There's a lo- level of vulnerability to her and a level of, of cleverness to Jason in that yeah. beat that we don't often see in those franchises. Yeah, I really liked Here. it. So um, um, let's move on to another interesting aspect of this, which is that half of the cast survives this film. That's and true. I love the reason why. It's because they stay out partying all night. (laughs) And again, if we're going to talk about this, the the standard tropes of this genre, it's the idea that if you have sex and do drugs, then you are doomed. But in this case, we have characters who are actively uh, surviving due to the fact that they like to stay out and drink. (laughs) I know. The, The geeky, goofy guy who survives because he hangs out at the bar and goes to an after hours after yeah, yeah, the bar yeah. closes. And, and, and there is like a certain creepy aspect to that. I, I mean, it's funny on one level, but on the other hand, it's like I, for, for that point forward, you know, that guy is going to go through life going, yeah, you, you know, that massacre that was up at Crystal Lake. Yeah. I could have been one of those guys if I hadn't, you know, just randomly decided to go get drunk at this other after hours party. <laughs> You know I mean, yes, and thus committed myself to drinking all day, every day for the rest <laughs> of my life. <laughs> yeah, that's very much in flies in the face of the sort of puritanical thematic underpinnings of of these films. Yeah, and to tie into that, the young couple that we do meet before our lead, Ginny. Um, I was surprised at how long they survived, and I also think it's interesting that the film is somewhat kind towards them in that like most of these teenagers and 20 somethings in these films, they, they get killed before they get their uh, moment of, you know, their petite mort, you know, their, their orgasm and Mm -hmm. they're denied, but this couple, they get to have their fantastic sex and they survive for a long time. And then they get uh, their, uh, they, they die lack, 
locked in each other's embrace. It, it, yeah. It's strange, but I kind of feel like the movie took it easy on them in a sense. But they would have survived had they not gone to the camp, uh, Camp Blood, because they would have been allowed to go out and party and presumably would have stayed out. That's I, that's interesting. I hadn't I hadn't thought of it in that sense. But you know who really gets the 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 metaphorical shaft is uh, Mark and Vicky, uh, who because that's one of the that's actually one of the relationships that I really liked was watching their uh, uh, attraction develop and it felt very organic and very natural. Uh, Mark Mark is the guy in the wheelchair and, and Vicky is the the uh, uh, the brunette that falls for him. Yes. Um, Vic, and, I, uh, I, have an, I have an entire thing I want to talk about with Mark. But yeah. yes. okay. Well, yeah, Vic, make your point about Mark and Vicky. Well, again, just that, that they have this this very sweet kind of natural relationship that they're they're the ones that they're getting ready to consummate. Um, you know, if only uh, you know Vicky didn't have to run back to her cabin to spray yes. perfume on her vagina. Um, Which she, I love that she does that because she's like guy in a wheelchair. Yeah, he's he's going down on me, and he already hinted see, yeah. as much. You know, uh, yeah. Um, but yeah, like you know, I don't know. Like that was all again. That was all. That was all handled in kind of a subtle way, and you really like you know you're. I'm not gonna lie. Like I was kind of rooting for Mark to get laid. You know, um, and so there. While the other the other couple who behaves badly, they get to have good sex. You know, the guy in the wheelchair and the girl who decided to stick around with him, uh, uh, you know, they don't they don't get their their day in the sun, so to speak. Um, yeah, they're a fascinating couple uh, because she clearly is sweet on him all along. And, and she's kind of more like an ordinary ish five or six kind of girl in, you know, whatever high school terms we're, we're talking about. And he would have been like a 10, you know I mean? He's, he's buff. He's great looking. Mm-hmm. He's athletic. He's pretty smart. You know, like he is a real catch and she feels like, Oh, you know, because he's in a wheelchair, I, I can get him. And she's just like on him from, from the very beginning. And he's kind mm-hmm. of like into it, but not, you know, he's taking it, taking it slow with her. Um, yeah. And I thought that was really an interesting dynamic that you don't see every day. One of the other moments that I laughed out loud is when she comes back from the, the cabin and Mark is, has, uh, is not there. She literally calls out for him twice and then goes up the stairs. And I was like, Mickey, if there's one place Mark isn't, <laughs> it's, it's upstairs. Like, he didn't look around at all for him. Um, uh, and it was a motorcycle accident, by the way. Uh, yes, it was. Yeah. I, I, yeah. Guys, l- let me get into this thought, because this mm-hmm. is the one thing that, that really jumped out at me about this movie, having not seen it for quite some time. Now, you... Both may recall that Roger Ebert had a famously doleful response to this movie. Yes. In which, in his review of Friday the 13th Part 2, he bemoans the idea that uh, he liked to see movies about young people because he wanted to see how, you know, that they were very vibrant. He wanted to see where they were going to go. And when Jason rams an ice pick into uh, the girl's head in the opening sequence and the crowd cheered, he felt bad for humanity. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Right. And uh, having reread that, uh, that, that review not too long ago, uh, you know, I, I, I thought, you know, Roger, you're, you're, you're being a little 
picky. You know, it's a drive-in movie. What do you want? You know, I mean, uh, no one sat down in front of Friday the 13th Part 2, you know, expecting a tender youth drama. You know, I mean, now put a pin in the map, though, because I will have to say Mark was a character that I was deeply rooting for throughout the entire movie. Uh, this was literally a guy. Uh, he had been in a motorcycle accident. He had lost use of his legs, but he has this conversation with Vicky in which he, and, and remember, like she comes on to him earlier, uh, he's offered sex, he's offered drugs, he's offered death, help, and he consistently refuses because his uh, consistent refrain is he's in training. He's in yes. training. Mm-hmm. You know, he is, and, and she finally goes, you know, I, I, what's this all about? And he goes, you know, the doctor told me that I'm never going to walk again, and I'm going to prove them wrong. You know what I mean? Yes. He is a puritanical guy. Uh, he is 100% focused on his goal of regaining the use of his legs, and he's going to prove the doctors wrong. And it's like I, I am at a place where I'm just like I can't wait to see this guy do that. Like I, 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 I he, even when he's injured, he's still scoring checks. You know what I mean? And imagine mm-hmm. what the tra- the amazing trajectory of this guy's life when he overcomes this uh, this obstacle and turns things around. And I mean, he, like he's going to be you know, a pretty amazing dude. And well, he then, has a line. There are two very bluntly portentous or I, darkly ironic na- lines in this film. And right. he says, I'm not going to spend the rest of my life in this chair. Right. And he literally does spend the rest of his life in that chair. But <laughs> I, 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 I think that's interesting that, um, you know, his death comes completely out of nowhere. There, there's yes. very little buildup. There's almost zero buildup to it. There's no stalking. There's no creeping. I love that. Yeah, basically, you know, he he turns his head and he gets uh, and Jason rams a machete into his head and then he falls backwards on the stuff. And John, I, I knew you had mentioned that um, that sequence, you know, plays in kind of the you know in previous sessions and all the rest of the movies because I mean that's like one of the biggest kills of this franchise. I mean, it's completely over the top. It's gory. It's Gonzo. It's the kind, exactly the kind of thing that you're going to get a, a bunch of teenagers in a movie theater in 1981 screaming their fucking heads off. Yes. But at the same time, that is the death at which I understood what I, 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 that, that's when I was able to connect with where Roger Ebert was. Like the girl getting the ice pick in her head. I'm like, eh, you know, it's a horror movie. You know, shit happens. But I mean, with this guy, it's like we spend the whole movie building up what an amazing cat this dude is. And like I actually felt the loss of having him just randomly die because some weirdo in the woods decided to chop him down. You know what I mean? Well, they're playing games with us as far as the timing of the POV shots and whose POV it is the whole way in this one. Like you're never sure whether it's Jason or someone else. And it like, they start lulling us into the idea that it isn't Jason a lot of the time. Mm -hmm. And the way that his kill is shot, like you mentioned it, it, it's not edited or shot the way that so many are like we do get sort of like this long truck into the back of his head. Mm-hmm. And, but mm-hmm. like by this point, we're not a hundred percent sure at all that that's Jason, but it is because that's when he just suddenly gets the whack in the face. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I also like that, like they freeze frame at the end of his yes, rattling down do. the, the stairs in this yeah. chair. It's yeah. really shot in an interesting and different way. Yeah, I, 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 I was very emotionally invested in this character. I mean, even though I knew that he was going to die, I'd seen the movie before. I knew I was watching Fred Zinzin's movie, but it's just like, yeah, I had forgotten about this character. And like rewatching his story, I was like, man, I was really rooting for this dude. 
There are mm. some great shots in this film, like the one where she's in the cabin at the end, Ginny is, and we see in the back, deep background of the frame, through the little slit of window in the door of this cabin, Jason's mask, the the hood, the bag, mm. appear and start running towards the house. Yeah. All yeah, in I agree. one take. He draws all the way up to the door, gets through it. She, we then run with her. There's some fantastic steady cam running uh, in this oh, film. Yeah, dude. yeah. Um, and so we the, the shot doesn't end until she's behind another door. She's barred the door. She turns around and is confronted by the altar with Pamela's head on it. All of that is one long take. It's it's right. beautiful. Yeah, I, 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 you know, there's a lot of really kick ass. Uh, study cam work going on. I, like I, I think Miner is doing his level damnedest to do Jaws. You know, what I mean, because I mean, there 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 are mm-hmm. like several sequences in which like I I think there's one in which like the characters um kind of hang out on a porch and discuss what they're going to do with their evening. And like some of them go off to the bar, some of them going to stick around, and the camera just kind of floats back across the cabin. And you know, I mean, there's like a ton of great camera reveals in this movie yes. i mean it's it's way better directed than you go into friday the 13th part two expecting i love the the scene that really frightened me and it's it, 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 i believe it's a single take although it's it's more of a steady shot is uh, uh when she let's see i think it's right after paul has has it turns out not been killed but after jason's sort of lost to paul and she runs closes herself in, in uh, uh, I think it's a bathroom, and there's no lock. And so she's literally just holding on to the door, and there's a window opposite her that she's trying to get to the window without letting go of the door. Right. And it's a, it's a really long, uh, very sort of patient scene that culminates with her reaching for the window, and then Jason bursts through the, bursts through the window. But right. the, the amount of tension they build up in that scene, I mean, if, I, yes. if I'd had popcorn, it would have gone up in the air. Oh, um, yeah. Fantastic scene. It's, yeah. it's, it's great. That's it, it, one of my favorites of the movie. Because, I, I, yeah, it, it's, it, she's making a life-or-death decision. Hang out the mm-hmm. door, go for the window, and it's like, I mean, what would you do in that sequence? You don't know, you know? Yeah. So what did we think of Paul? What did you guys think of this character? Well, I love, I'll tell you what, the, the, what Paul has that, uh, uh, the scene he has that I really enjoyed is the campfire scene. Um, yeah. I mean, we've talked, we've talked about the influence of like, you know, the, the fog and that kind of, you know, that, that this, even more so than the, the, the first film, this sort of incarnation of Jason and, and, and this is part of, I think, how this film really sets up what becomes a franchise is this notion that it is, uh, you know, the kind of story that can be told around the campfire. There was a little boy who drowned and his mother killed a bunch of camper counselors to get revenge. Um, you know, but then the boy came back and now he lives in the woods and, and, you know, is waiting to take his revenge. Right. Um, it's, a, it's an amazing scene that, and the, the actor, I think actually delivers it very well. It's no John Houseman, but, um, uh, it's, it's very good. And he, I don't know, he has the, the leadership qualities. I mean, I remember thinking as they were pulling in, I mean, having, having been a 4-H counselor, like, really? You mean two weeks of counselor training? Like, don't, don't let the kids stab themselves with a fork. Like, that's, the, that's really what being a counselor means as far as I can tell. <laughs> um, 
<laughs> but uh, I love when he says this he, isn't the cush summer job that you guys think it is. Right. Yeah. 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 And he's like, you know, we're we're getting back to basics. We're doing, you know, we're doing, you know, lifeguarding, you know, uh, 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 boating, and and I, I forget he rambles off a list of things that he's going to teach them. And I was like, well, shit, that's actually a pretty good list. I enjoyed him. Uh, he he was credible as someone who who would you know, lead a bunch of, of teenagers out into the woods and seem like he could handle the situation. I love the, there's the scene when they catch, uh, somebody look at the name. So I get this right. When they catch, uh, the couple, Jeff and Jeff and Sandra at camp blood and the, the cop brings them back and you know, what, you're not even going to yeah. punish them. <laughs> yeah. I really <laughs> like that. Yeah. Jenny, you know, no, no second, no seconds on dessert for them. Yeah, um, yeah exactly. The cop rules his eyes. You know, the, the, the best yeah. thing about Paul to me is the fact that um, in another movie, he would be an antagonist. If this was like a slobs versus snobs comedy, because he's mm-hmm. he's kind of he's kind of square. He's kind of bossy. You know, he's he's a blonde guy with an, you know, I, I, and he looks like Fred from Scooby-Doo. You know, what I mean, um, yeah. he's, he's very much he's really different from the leader guy. You know, the, the Steve Christie was the character's name from the yes. first movie. Where like you, mm-hmm. you know for a fact that that dude owns a van with like a fucking wizard painted on the side of it, you know. Whereas this this guy, <laughs> you know what I mean. Whereas like this dude is like he's super square, uh, but at the same time he keeps you know. I, I, I at first blush you're just like oh man he's just this very one dimensional guy, but through his actions, we keep seeing that he's actually like way cooler and more you know, a decent guy than we expect at first blush. Yeah. You know? yeah. Like I really like this character and he is another one like Jenny where he's not a type, you know, like he, you can't just say he's the hard ass stick in the mud, you know, counselor, uh, leader or, right. you know, the smug, uh, know it all egomaniac, even though he has both of those qualities, he has all of that like moments where you see that those facets of his personality. Yeah. I also like when he's talking about the bears and he's warning <laughs> yeah. the, uh, the women he's like, and uh, yeah, he says all of it like in kind of like loud, clear language. And then he kind of glances down at the clipboard and rushes and he says, and ladies, be sure that you're um, very clean. Uh, when it's <laughs> yeah, that time I of the know. month. <laughs> I, I, that's another one that I laughed out loud at. I and mean, as you guys brought up a moment ago, I mean, this movie uh, does the best of the series of underlining the idea that this is a campfire tale come to life. You know what I mean? And I have to wonder if, I, I, you know, as as a creative thing, I think that that's wonderful. As a uh, factor that plugs into this overarching idea of the supernatural being in play way before Jason is a zombie, I think that, you know, that's part of the incantation that's the summoning. You know, Pamela mm-hmm. has made a blood sacrifice. Fred uh, makes the incantation and Jason arrives. You know what I mean? Yeah, well, and, it's been five quiet years, which is also interesting. Like, yeah. the legend is frozen five years before. You know, I like, think, the legend at the campfire that he, he shares, no updates have happened until this night. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I think that this is an evil that requires gestation. You know what I mean? It's, yeah. it's, uh, you know, it, it takes a little while. But I, I mean, as a sidebar to that, um, this is also a movie in which our harbinger from the first movie is murdered. Yes. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's, uh, I mean, if we were to look crazy at crazy Ralph, 
Yeah, I mean, if we were to look at, uh, say, Cabin in the Woods, you know, we would say, you know, I, and we've never seen a character who plays this role get killed, but it actually happens. I particularly love that they find his body at the end. Ginny finds his body, and guess where it is? The pantry! Yeah, I know! <laughs> <laughs> Even where where he yes where he loved to hang out he's famously <laughs> caught hiding in the pantry in the first film and that's where jason deposits his body in this one but i, I, I like the idea that jason uh i mean these are the first the first two kills of this film are a the final kill from the first one and b the guy who tried to warn the kids from the first one you know i mean like he cleans up behind his mom before getting to work on the new batch. Let's move on to the ending. Uh, what were your guys' impressions of the climax and final images of this film? Because there is this psychological layer to Jason, um, I mean, I think the ending is, is very effective. Um, I mean, the you know, she's locked in this room. She sees, you know, this altar that, that Jason has built to his mother and we've established her as a character who would put this idea together, which which is part of, you know, again, what what makes this this film stand out. We've established the character is smart. She understands psychology. She's, you know, so when this comes to her, it's not it's not just cheap screenwriting. She has this idea about how to uh, uh, how to, to to maybe do this. Um, I found it. I mean, one of the moments that's almost it's almost comical, but it works. It's after she puts on the sweater, she's looking at this shriveled head and trying to fix her hair. <laughs> so look yeah. more like Jason. Yeah, I like that. I really like <laughs> that. Uh, and then, I mean, the image of him, you know, kneel down, I, you know, I've got a, I've got a surprise for you. Um, that image of him submitting and being vulnerable, and again, it communicates a lot about what Jason's relationship with his mother was like when, when she was alive, you know, yes. but this doesn't seem like a weird request. Um, yes. uh, it's, it's, it's all, it's all very interesting. I think, I mean, it really does. It, it, it lends a level of complexity to the movie uh, that you really buy and that they, they really earn. It also shows you how badly he wants it to be true. I mean, we yeah. go into his point of view again here, and obviously we share his point of view literally many times throughout the film. But here we see his subjective vision of Betsy Palmer, you know, playing his mother and here's her voice. And I think it's because it taps so perfectly and deeply into his need and his desire for exactly this to happen. This is why mm -hmm. he's been doing it. So it's pretty logical that he buys into it so completely. You know, it's interesting that in the first movie, uh, Pamela has vi extremely vivid visions that we also see. It's like when she starts talking about Jason drowning, we cut to Jason drowning. Yes. You know, uh, mm -hmm. and he spe and she speaks in his little boy voice. You know, and uh, yeah, I, 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 this is kind of a perfect bookend to that relationship. Yeah, yeah they're both they're both profoundly psychologically trying to keep the other alive. A side note, did you guys happen to notice that there's a body sprawled, an unidentified, decayed female body at the bottom of base of the altar? Yeah. I'm pretty sure that's Alice. Yes. Yes, I yeah. did. And I was trying to figure out who that was. That's got to be Alice. Yeah. yeah. Because that's, they that's... mention 
uh, Paul mentions at the campfire that Alice disappeared. Right. Yeah. 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 So I, Jason, you know, it's, uh, mom, you know, goes and Jason said and says, get her. And Jason goes and gets her and brings her back and lays her as a human, literal human sacrifice before her literal altar. Yeah. I, I, again, we're talking about, yeah, again, we're, we're looking at something with the trappings of black magic. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Backwoods black magic. Yeah, I, 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 I've, I've actually always had like a soft spot for um, evil wizardry of, of rednecks in the woods, you know, like pumpkinhead type shit, you know? Right. Um, yeah. Uh, and I will say, gentlemen, that um, I understand the thought process behind having our sting at the end be Jason leaping through a window. Um. You know, it's kind of a oh, he leapt on a girl in the first at the end of the first movie. Now he's going to leap on a girl in this one. Uh, but I think that if the filmmakers made one significant mistake, is we should have had Pamela's head's eyes open. If I, I, you know, it's funny because I had I have the exact same impulse as that as that shot is tracking in. Yes. Um, uh, that oh my god, her eyes are going to open. Yeah. But I'm actually. I'm actually glad they didn't because I mean, as I think we've established, there is a, there is a certain kind of logic to the way the movie works. You can, you can paint a picture uh, within the, the, the movie's internal logic of how Jason came back to life, that he continues to age and how the supernatural elements play. And as unsettling and creepy as that would have been, I don't feel like that play that that plays into that logic. Um, yes, uh, but, well, I, but I, I, I could see that it. being too, one step too far, you know. Yeah. Um, but I will say that, in in like a screenwriting sense, I think that maybe the suggestion, I mean, while valid, might not be what I would go with. But you're putting your finger on a problem because I do have a problem with the ending. Um, I find it almost incomprehensible. Um, yeah. let, let's walk through it. We're mirroring the end of the first movie almost exactly, you know, with right. Jason mm-hmm. empty-handed popping up out of nowhere. And again, it's pretty well staged because you think with the dog, you know, the movie's over or whatever. Well, it's a, it's I mean, surprising. It's, it's a repetition of the beat with the cat from the from the open scene. Yeah, oh, that's true. yeah, interesting, interesting. Yeah, but yeah. like we we get the music and everything. It looks like everything's okay, and even Muffin the dog survived. And then he pops up mm-hmm. empty-handed in slow motion to seize the girl. And just like in the original, we cut. She wakes up okay. Society and help are here. Somehow Jason's not here. She's not hurt. Now she's wondering where Paul is, and we never find out what happened to Paul. Yeah, but she survived mm-hmm. this attack, and mm-hmm. then. Cut to cut to. Well, we get the head. We get Pamela's head, like as you said, like a, yeah. a weirdly insinuating mystical shot of the head, and then roll credits. Mm-hmm. So, what the fuck happened here, guys? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, 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 there, there are a couple of moments in the first movie that don't exactly cut together, but I could kind of squint and go, nah, you know, whatever. But yeah, I, I mean, this ending, I would say. Uh, is kind of a pile of random shots thrown together because it's quote unquote seems spooky. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. 
Like, yeah, yeah. I have a real problem with this ending. Vic, what's your interpretation of that? Like, what what I mean, do you think happened? There is there is the possibility. This is this is what I said. If you ask me to connect those dots, what I would say is Jason jumps through the window and grabs her. Paul is still alive. They still have lots of weapons. Like Paul and Jason struggle while she's unconscious and, you know, somehow, you know, Paul runs off and Jason follows him and Jason kills Paul off in the woods somewhere. Like there's a, there's a, there's a way to make this all make sense or whatever. Um, what I would have preferred is if Jason had leapt through the window and grabbed Muffin and then just sprinted <laughs> back into the woods. <laughs> like if it was like if the dog was had had actually been his ultimate target the whole time. Um, and, then, and then we open three with a guy going telling the campfire story of the dog that had been dragged <laughs> off the woods, and years later it's a, 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 a it's. It, it's oh, Muffin's quite... just a legend. No, it's... There's a frightened retard of a dog out there in the woods. <laughs> All right, well, before we tie a bow on this one, no pun intended, because Muffin wore a nice, pretty little blue bow, um, I want to double back to two things. We promised to talk about Terry really quick, which was Muffin's owner um, and the chick who does a full nude scene in this. And it's not really a full frontal, like it's a half frontal or a quasi frontal mm-hmm. or something, it's but tasteful. Uh, it's tasteful. Yes. John. <laughs> it's there you go. But I thought she was interesting because like, this is a bizarre girl. Like she doesn't really fit into any archetype either. You know, she's kind of, weird and quirky and like somewhat robotic and and kind of stiff and uptight but then she has she just disrobes and skinny dips and somehow that also seems consistent with her sort of spacey i want to be a model kind of persona that she has well yeah i i and it's weird because i mean the guy who's interested in her also feels like he's from a different movie he 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 seems like an Italian fashion model from like 1978. You know what I mean? <laughs> right, right. It's, John Tra- it's John Travolta from Welcome Back, Cotter. Yeah, who, who like <laughs> wa- who, like wandered into this movie and it's like a really way different energy and does not seem like he belongs as a camp counselor or even at a fucking summer camp in the first place. I, I mean, he seems like a fucking gigolo walking around. You know what I mean? Yeah, and he's trying to get into her Mm -hmm. pants the whole time, like, somewhat ineptly, but, like, you get the feeling he's gonna score eventually if they get killed. Yeah, he's he's got, like, this kind of weird European polished, good-looking kind of dude where, like, I mean, even, like, really childish levels of game are still gonna get him something. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Right. Shoots her in the ass with a a slingshot. Which is shot like a kill, which I love. Yeah, like but I, I, I know Shelly from part three tried to pull that shit. I mean, he would get a smack in the face, but I, I, I mean, he does this and she just kind of reacts. So he's know? dancing with Muffin because she won't dance with him. And Muffin sees Jason out the window and gets scared. And he's like, whoa, I, I guess I'm not going to score with anybody tonight or I'm, I'm, I'm striking out all over the place. <laughs> but Muffin walks right up to Jason's shoes. And mm-hmm. and Jason doesn't kill Muffin at that point, so maybe maybe Jason and Muffin do have kind of an understanding. Yeah, or maybe Jason was still full from the other dog. Like I, <laughs> I don't know. I, I um, think the, 
dog did in fact die to a bear attack. I I, I think yeah. that other dog did not think to keep itself clean in the woods. Right. Yeah, and it was that time of the month for that dog. My yeah. God. <laughs> <laughs> what have we come to? Here we go. Um, let me let me ask you. Uh, I think. Well, all right. So first on on Carrie. I mean, you're right. Like she she does seem like this girl who is who is just like the the cynical view is they picked a hot girl, they put her in a skimpy outfit, they had her take off her clothes, uh, and then they killed her. But she does seem like you know if you're if the less cynical view is she's someone who is just flaunting her sexuality, but she knows that there's a power in that. And if she gives in to this guy, you know, she's going to lose that power. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like she's kind of taunting him because she enjoys taunting him. But even when he gets strung up in the, in the thing, like the last thing she's, you know, you keep thinking like when he's dancing with the dog and like, you know, that he's making headway with this girl. You sort of yeah. feel like this is, this is building towards, they're going to be, you know, they're going to be the ones getting, uh, she's warming up to in, him. In, in exactly. But once she's strung up, what does she say? She says, you're going to cut the, you're going to cut the shit. Right. Um, uh, you know what yeah, I mean? That right. like, she's not, I don't think he's actually making any headway. I don't think she's ever going to sleep with that guy. <laughs> yeah. Her, um, her initial response to finding this dude hanging upside down is, is to make fun of him and not to go, why would there be a rope trap here? Oh <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, do you guys think Jason laid that trap? Oh, of course he did. Yeah. Well, he but remember she immediately attributes it to Paul and his yeah. and his like quote like your stupid outdoor shit or whatever. And I was yeah. like, wait, what? <laughs> like yeah. Paul, like this is this was your immediate thing is like Paul's been laying bear traps and callus. Yeah, yeah. yeah, noose traps. Like, um, yeah. it's more like a Vietnam thing, you know. Yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah. Again, some kind of backwoods Rambo maneuver, uh, which isn't normally in Jason's playbook either. And it's kind of interesting that he does that snare. And what could be more vulnerable than hanging upside down in a forest clearing at night by your foot? He just gets his throat cut, which is. Again, struck me as generous of Jason. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I, I mean, yeah, he bleeds him out like literally, like he's preparing a pig for kosher. You know, what I mean, um, yeah. yeah. But I, I mean, that's the thing is, like, I, you know, the 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 female characters are very sexually forward. I, I mean, there's there's that beat in uh, early on. I, I mean, talking about Mark and Vicky, where um, you know, the two of them are kind of hanging out in a room with another two characters, and basically in that scene, both the women go, "Okay, doke." Let's get laid, you know. I mean, and and yeah. you know, and subsequently lead their their given males away. We can't not talk about the kills. Any thoughts that we haven't covered about any of the kills that you guys were particularly struck by? I was truth be told, I was kind of I'm going to say underwhelmed. I mean, they're yeah. they're because we, we've you know, I mean, we sort of covered this that like there's no at this point there's still a very. Uh, uh, of simplistic methodical kind of i mean that's i think vicky's death in particular that's one of those those uh, uh cliched moments that they couldn't avoid i think steve minor just fell in love with that shot where the knife comes up into frame and vicky's out of focus in the back and jason just walks toward her he walks toward her for like 15 seconds and she's just standing there like kind of covering herself with her arm like it's like the you know the austin powers moment when the guy gets run over by the uh the steamroller, like, right. yeah, yeah. Um, you know, that she had lots of time to get away. It's a cool shot. And then the knife just plunges down and that's sort of, you know, and that's sort of it. 
Um, I mean, I think it's, it, it is one of the things that, that's interesting about the film is that it's certainly violent, um, but it doesn't, I guess I feel like there was a lot of thought and effort put into the kills in the first one, the effects work and stuff. Uh, uh, I think More so. Is that right? Yeah. Well, you know, I, 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 Vic, I, I, it's interesting. I mean, in both of these movies, one and two, there's one kill that I don't think quite cuts together. And the first one, it's the axe murder. Um, mm-hmm. I don't think the, the pieces don't exactly fit in terms of, you know, the shots, uh, shot composition. And in this mm-hmm. one, you know, this kill that you just described was the other one that kind of put my radar up a little bit where I was just like, eh, really? Because I mean, even when the knife comes down, it's like really like a little painfully clear that he's like sweeping his, his hand like a foot away from her yeah. chest. You know what I mean? And she just kind of, and, and she, it, it's one of the kills that I, I dislike the most where the character just kind of goes, Ugh! you know, it's yeah. like, and However, when he's dragging her bloody feet down the stairs, right. that's pretty awesome. And, and the first say, reveal of Jason on camera is awesome. Before that, mm-hmm. when he's hiding under the blanket and he pops yes. up with the eyes yes. staring. That's the first time we really get the bag over the head. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's awesome. Uh, it's yeah. really well staged and effective. And uh, I, I will also say, uh, as, as a follow-up, uh, the the bed that's completely drenched with blood beats the shit yeah. out of the, the ax in the bed yes. from the first one that just kind of has mm-hmm. like a little dollop on the edge. It's like, you know, you walk in there and it's just like, I ain't mean, holy shit. There's like a Jack the Ripper crime scene. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's Ginny who says, I have to something to tell you. And we never find out what she needed to tell Paul. Do you yeah, think that Ginny right. was a virgin or pregnant Pregnant was my thought when she said that, mm-hmm. but you're right. I, I completely missed it. We didn't come back to that. But I think they do sleep together. Like it's pretty strongly implied that they, they sleep mm-hmm. together in this movie. Uh, I mean, during the film, uh, Ginny and Paul, but I don't know. Yeah. Like it's weird. There's a lot of little subtle things that are hinted at in this film. Like we've been talking about all along with people's backstories and motivations and stuff that I love. And you know, the last time, that Vicky, and I mean Vicky, not Sandra, um, says mm-hmm. to the guy in the wheelchair, you know, what are you training for? It just cuts away. Right. Like he yeah. doesn't actually answer the question literally. And I agree completely, Mike, with your interpretation of, of his character. But I love little things like that. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I, I and again, I, I, one of the, like, weird random things that kind of chews on my brain while I'm watching his movies is I, I keep thinking about, uh, the characters in the town nearby, because I mean, in the first one, they're like a layer of warnings. Like we have a trucker who's like, don't go there. We have uh, you know, a scene with Steve Christie and the matronly diner waitress. And uh, in part two, we have um, a bar. We have a diner. You know, I mean, it's like we, we have this entire little community of people that I mean, I, it's almost like they're they're the inhabitants of uh, Blair. Uh, what's the. um Maryland? Yeah, Blair, Burkitt, Maryland. Burkitt, Burkittsville. That's Burkittsville. right. Burkittsville. Yeah. I, I, I think that there is... Gentlemen, gentlemen, that's why you have me on this podcast. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Thank I, you, I, I think, I, Like, I mean, again, if I were ever to be creatively involved in Friday the 13th project, I would, I would definitely explore the Christie family and Burkittsville. You know I mean? Mm-hmm. I always wonder Crystal, what those... Crystal Lake. You you get the sense that the people in this town have just like they found a way to just peacefully coexist with Jason. 
Yeah, you know up I mean? until this like, point. He can, he can have the woods. We're going to stay up mm-hmm. here. We're going to be really wary of going there. Um, and there's sort of a detente there, you know? Like, it's a cold mm-hmm. war. Uh, no one's getting killed during that period. Yeah. Well, it, let's it, uh, wrap up with, like, just final thought or two. Anything that you guys wanted to get into that we haven't talked about about this film specifically? It is interesting to see uh, this franchise still finding its seat in two films in uh, that, that gives it again, this kind of, this kind of unique and interesting feeling. We're still figuring out what the world is going to be. We're still establishing new tropes. Uh, it's not just a, a, a you know, a, a recreation of this, the, the first one, you know, the old idea of, of just, you know, do the same thing, but more. Um, I think it's interesting. They're still, they're doing different and interesting things uh, and getting to watch that established, um, uh, makes it an well, yeah. interesting watch. This is kind of the ante that they keep upping in the subsequent mm-hmm. films. Like this is yeah. the true archetype that Friday the 13th, as we know it is going to yeah. be following from. And right. I will say that like in some sections of the film and like Mike was talking about with like a weak kill here or there, I feel like it's weaker for it because like they get, they're forced to get so much more spectacular and genius and ingenious later on with these kills and things that this movie feels like kind of the, you know, level one for Jason and for the audience in a way, but there's so many good things about the film that I think it overcomes that sort of um, just setting the table feeling that, that Mm -hmm. it has. Um, two random things for me and my notes that I didn't say anything about that I just find funny and or interesting. First, the funny one. Um, Vicky changes her panties in this film, like for no apparent reason at all. Like she's wearing like black undies and then she switched to these actually kind of hideous brown ones. And like that's where she thinks she's up in her game. <laughs> I just find right. that really funny. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what is that other than yeah. um we do need to get some tna into this right. film and yeah. then the other thing is the presence of rain again in this film yeah? is mm-hmm. used very thoughtfully like very you you get this portentous shot of like rain hitting a lamp or something in the earliest stages of the rainfall and it has this complete oh shit it's mm-hmm. on kind of a vibe yeah. And I like the sort of association of the rain in these films with the killer taking it to the next level, you know, yeah. like yeah. It, it, on yeah. a visceral level, it just really sets the mood very nicely. That's it. Unless you have any final thoughts. Yeah, that's it. Well, a uh, uh, pleasure as always, gentlemen, and looking forward to uh, doing part three. Indeed. Uh, thank you all for listening. Thanks, you guys, for your time. Another great conversation, and we'll see you next time. Right on. Take it easy. Bye, guys. Adios.